Welcome back to our study of 1 Kings. We are in 1 Kings chapter 13 today. We're just going to be looking at the first 10 verses. And this is a chapter that begins uh, with high drama. This is a dramatic story, a dramatic event that takes place here in the first 10 verses of chapter 13. And I'm looking forward to digging into the second half with you next week because the second half of chapter 13... uh, has one of the more perplexing, um, interesting, head-scratching stories that you'll encounter uh, anywhere in the Old Testament. So Lord willing, we'll get to that next week, but today let's focus on verses 1 to 10. Now I'm leaning on the comments in the ESV Study Bible for this chapter, which are super helpful. Uh, I was also really helped by the comments of Dale Ralph Davis, who I think I mentioned before. He's just a superb Bible teacher, especially when it comes to the Old Testament. And uh, so I really benefited from their help in understanding this chapter. But let's dig in to verse 1. It says, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. Now, here's something that I missed that I, I encourage you not to miss often, but I missed it this time, and that is the significance of the connection between chapter 12 and chapter 13. Sometimes those chapter breaks really get in our way, and I think both Dale Ralph Davis and the ESV Study Bible point out um, that what happens in verse 1 happens hot on the heels of the last verse of chapter 12. Remember in chapter 12, Jeroboam has established a rival religion. Uh, He's crafted two idols, two golden calves, one to go in Bethel in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, one in Dan in the northern part of the kingdom of Israel to keep the people of Israel from being drawn back to the house of David as they go to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. The way he decided to solve that problem, what he thought was a problem, was to establish his own religion, his own priests, his own feasts and everything, his own high places uh, in opposition to the temple where God was supposed to be worshipped. And uh, he did that so that the people of Israel wouldn't be drawn back to the house of David and decide they don't need Jeroboam and get rid of him. So what is happening at the end of chapter 12, verse 33 says, Jeroboam went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So it's as he goes up to the altar to make these offerings, that verse 1 happens. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. So what the ESV Study Bible says is something like this. This appears to be Jeroboam's... um, moment of dedication for his altar. This is the first time that he's going to be making sacrifices there. And so it reminds us of Solomon dedicating the temple that he built for the worship of the Lord. Only this time, uh, Solomon had a long dedication prayer and a blessing and They say Jeroboam doesn't even get to speak before he can say anything to dedicate this place of worship to his rival gods that he's created. Um, He's interrupted by a word from the Lord, by a prophet, by a man of God. So I didn't catch that. Man, I wish I had. Uh, But I was really helped by that from the ESV Study Bible. So uh, he gets interrupted by this prophet. And then verse 2. 
And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. So this is a word of judgment, a, um, a prophetic denouncement of this altar and of the worship that's taking place here. He, uh, the prophet predicts the destruction or desecration of this altar. And he says that it's going to happen at the hand of a son of David. Now that's significant because um, that's exactly what Jeroboam was trying to guard against. He was trying to guard against his people being drawn back to the house of David. And here God says, uh, the house of David is actually going to come and take over and destroy the rival worship that you have established to try to keep the people from going back to the house of David. The second thing is, we know that it's from the line of David that the great king is going to come who's going to reign over God's kingdom forever. Now, it's uh, not going to be Josiah who's named here, but Josiah is pointing toward, reminding us of that future time when some, uh, some son is going to be born from the line of David who's going to establish the kingdom of God. Josiah is a pointer to that king, to Jesus the Messiah. Also, it's significant that Josiah is named in advance. This very rarely happens in the Bible that God puts a name on the person that he's going to use in the future before they're even born. It does happen with Cyrus. I think it's in Isaiah 45, uh, but it's rare that God does this. So he names the king from David's line in advance who's going to come and bring destruction on this altar that Jeroboam has established for the idol that he has crafted. God is going to bring judgment on this altar. And then verse 3 says, And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. So with this prophecy about what's going to happen in the future comes a sign to confirm that this really is a word from the Lord. And the sign is that the altar is going to be uh, torn down and the ashes poured out. Now, when is that going to happen? Sooner than you might think. Verse 4, And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Now, that's a terrifying moment. Jeroboam hears this word of judgment from the prophet speaking God's word. And rather than repenting, rather than humbling himself, rather than acknowledging his sin and his rebellion, he tries to stop the prophet. He calls for him to be seized, arrested, and who knows what he would have tried to do with him uh, once they had caught him. But as he, when he stretches out his hand to call out against this prophet, what happens? God dries it up so that he can't draw it back. Ooh, right? Um, and so uh, God enacts judgment against Jeroboam, which is another sign 
that this is really God at work speaking this uh, prophecy through this man of God um, that's confirmed right uh, by what uh, happens to the king's hand when he tries to have the prophet arrested. And so um, then verse 5 says, The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So apparently it happens almost immediately that this sign is fulfilled, that the prophet, or that the prophet had spoken, that the altar is torn down and the ashes are poured out. Now, how did that happen? Was there some kind of earthquake? Were there some people waiting in the wings who knew this was the wrong thing to do? And as soon as they heard the prophet speak, they ran up and tore up the altar? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. We would love to know. But what we need to know is that it happened. The sign was fulfilled. So you've got uh, the prophet announcing judgment. You have the sign being proclaimed of the altar being destroyed and then torn down. That sign happens almost immediately. And in addition to that, the king who tries to have the prophet uh, arrested, his hand dries up so that he can't draw it back to himself. So it's very clear in this moment that God is acting, right? that God is at work, that Jeroboam and his rival religion are under the judgment of God. So what happens next? Verse 6, And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. So the king is at least is willing um, to say, ask God to heal my hand, right? And the prophet agrees, and he asks the Lord to restore his hand, and God does. Now, we don't want to make too much of that, right? Because Pharaoh does the same kind of thing. If you go back and read the story of the plagues in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh also will say, okay, I sinned, pray to the Lord, or, or pray to your God and ask him to take these things away, or whatever. But he didn't really truly repent, and the same is true of Jeroboam. He wants his hand fixed, and he recognizes the power of God that just dried up his hand, and he wants God to use that power to heal his hand, but Jeroboam does not actually uh, turn back to the Lord. And we know that because at the end of the chapter in verse 33, it says, After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. So Jeroboam did not repent. He did not stop worshiping the idol. In fact, he appointed more priests. And so he didn't listen to the Lord. Um, this is a warning for us. Right, this is a warning for us. Jeroboam is um, an example of what not to do, how not to respond to the Lord. Um, he, uh, he doesn't repent. He doesn't listen. Um, and how do we respond when our sin is called out? If someone shows up and says, you're doing the wrong thing. God doesn't want you to do this. If you're going to do this, you're going to be judged. Do we get angry? Do we get mad at the messenger? Or do we recognize that God is speaking and that God is right and we're in the wrong and that we need to repent? We wish that Jeroboam had repented. He wanted mercy, right? He wanted his hand healed, 
right? But he didn't really want to turn back to the Lord, or he didn't turn back to the Lord. But he did have his hand healed. God did show him mercy. And verse 7 says, And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. Now that sounds nice, doesn't it? But look at verse 8. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So the king, uh, it sounds to us like the king is maybe trying to be nice, right? Come on, have a, have a rest, have a drink. I'll give you a reward. Maybe that sounds like the king has had a change of heart. But God has already told the prophet, don't stick around. Don't even go home the same way that you came. Don't eat bread. Don't drink water. Right? You get on home is what he's told to do. And so he leaves. Right? So um, probably, um, at least one of those uh, sources that I, that I mentioned earlier, I think says, you know, probably the king was doing this to try to, you know, sort of win the prophet's favor and maybe see if he could soften up that denouncement about the altar or something like that. This is not... This is not evidence of the king's repentance, and it's apparently not an innocent invitation. And that's why God warned the prophet not to accept it, not to stay, uh, but instead uh, to return. It sounds a little bit like some of the warnings that God gave to Israel about the other nations who worship false gods. Right? They weren't really supposed to hang out with those people. They weren't supposed to get close to them and they weren't supposed to make covenants with them and they weren't supposed to intermarry with them. Why? Because they didn't want, God did not want them to be corrupted by the nations that were worshiping other gods and turned toward idols. Perhaps that's the same reason why God warned this prophet not to stay in Israel because it had been corrupted, was being corrupted by the worship of false gods and God did not want his prophet uh, to be corrupted by that worship by those people who are worshiping false gods either. So um, the next half of the chapter, which again, we don't have time to get into this time. The next chapter, half of the chapter gets even more interesting. And so I'm looking forward to diving into that with you next week. But for now, let's just remember, God does not tolerate rivals. God does not tolerate idols. Our heart is supposed to be given wholly to the one true God. We are to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We are to have no other gods before him. Our allegiance, our ultimate allegiance is to be to him alone. So let no one deceive you and persuade you into worshiping any other God alongside of him or instead of him. But instead give your heart wholly to the one true and living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.